Good morning, good morning, and good morning to you too. This is Gloria J. Brown Marshall, and this is Law of the Land, a program that's designed to inform, to empower, to inspire, to help you to think about how you can use the power you have to make the world a better place. Not just wait for someone else to do it, but within your sphere of influence, that winga span you have to say that I'm going to make this choice over that one. I am going to go out of my way just a little bit. And in doing so, you have started that ripple in the water that is going to affect people well beyond your knowledge. My feeling is, and this is what's come from working on books that look over time, hundreds of years, that those who did not take their choice to act based on whether or not they knew exactly who would be the beneficiary. Think about that. I'm here because people who never knew my name said that they are going to help in the civil rights movement or in education. They're going to speak up for women and girls. They are going to make sure the world is a better place, that food is, is edible and, and doesn't have poison in it, that medicine is available. I remember Dr. Waxman, he and his wife, and they had a trailer. These were back in the day when they were like, I guess they figured that, you know, these Dr. Waxman, Mr. Doctor and Dr. Waxman, husband and wife, wife and husband, partners, um, went into the communities as a Jewish couple and they went into communities of color to give their health services. When I was a kid, I remember doctors Waxman. I remember them coming into the communities and I remember the librarian, for example, who, even though this was not legal segregation, but the country was still segregated, um, made sure that we had certain books to read. I remember these things. And so even though they might not ever remember my name in particular, they might not have done this for me as an individual person. What they did helped me. It helped me go beyond anything that I probably would have been able to do if I didn't have those books in the library. And then I read each and every one of them I could put my hands on and always try to get that gold star at the end of the summer for having read the most library books. I remember these things and I also remember the the racism I, I had is with teachers who, even though we didn't have racial segregation, divided my grade school class up by race. I remember that. I remember these things. And so you remember the people who helped. You also remember those who hindered. And I tell the story of how I worked on my my college, uh, my um, post-college applications. I was graduating and I wanted to know, am I going to be a writer? Am I going to be a lawyer? Um, am I going to business school? I didn't know that it was, the world was open to me and I was unsure what path to take after college. But I just knew I wanted to get out of college. I was really tired of the University of Missouri, Columbia. So I decided that um, I would apply to all three. I stayed up and I worked on for weeks and days and then down to the hours. And then that night before, I just...
stayed up the entire night. And that was before, before young people, before the computers. Yeah, you had to actually type that up and type it all up and all the applications and the essays and everything. And I had a stack of them and they're all in their envelopes and they, they have the stamps on them and everything. And, and I, it, I, in my mind's eye, it must have been at least uh, six inches, you know, of, of envelopes of applications for graduate school programs across the country. And my mailman came, and that morning I was exhausted but exhilarated. I'd been up all night. Remember those all-nighters? And I was up all night, and I handed the mailman the stack, and I said, these are my applications for graduate school. I've been up all night. Thank you so much for taking them to mail them. And I handed him that stack, and um, he smiled and left, and I waited, as we all do, and I waited, and I waited. And after not hearing anything, not even an acknowledgement of receipt or saying I'm in, I'm out. And and one of the programs, I said, well, I think about law school and being a writer. So the University of Iowa has a very well-known writing program and a law school. So I applied to the University of Iowa writing program as well as their law school. And I thought, okay, I think I have a strategic plan here. And and I and I waited. And then I realized after three months of not hearing anything, as the spring was opening and the end of the school year was coming, graduation was around the corner, I began to get very nervous. So I sat down and I had the list of places I had applied to, graduate programs around the country. You know, I was at the time, remember, should I be a writer? Should I go to business school? Should I go to law school? I wasn't sure. So I just began to call and I called the University of Iowa and I said, you know, I, I applied over um, four months ago and I haven't heard anything. And they said, we don't have anything from you. And I thought that was kind of strange. And I contacted the other schools and one by one, they all said we never received anything. And I was, of course, devastated because I realized that that smiling white mailman who had taken all my applications had thrown them away, never mailed them. And so the question becomes not what happens to you. Sometimes it comes down to how we respond to what happens to us. And I think it was not just being bused into schools in my middle school and high school days and being one of a handful of that in these classes. It wasn't just being at a college where we were not welcome, but I decided, even though we started as um, this very small handful of black students, only even just a finger full actually graduated. But I think these elements of that denial of my goals by a so-called public servant to intentionally do this and so many other things that have happened to me in my life made me the activist. So you may not think I want to be an activist. I don't think I really wanted to. I know I'm an overly protective person when it comes to certain people. 
especially the underdogs of the world, those who don't have the voice or don't have the wherewithal to use their voices. But that made me an activist. These things that I had gone through little by little, you know, forced me to say, I've got to speak up. And there are many, many more things that have happened. But that was a turning point in my life. But I decided there was one school I had applied to that wasn't in that stack. I was accepted into that school and I attended that school. And that's how I came to then um, be in a, a situation in which being a writer as well as being an activist and being a civil rights attorney, all those things have been a part of my trajectory. But I also believe in a life that's spirit led that sometimes we have to say, I'm going to make the best of what I have. And there have been people along the line who have seen something in me. And my listeners have been part of that whole trajectory that you saw something in me when I was just a guest on the show for Hugh Hamilton. Remember that when I started off in the 2000s, I think it was 2007 that I was on his show as a guest. And then to go through everything that's happened for me to be where I am today, I could not have planned it. But those like Hugh Hamilton, who saw something in me, gave me my start in radio. And so when I say we use this power within our wingspan where you are, what you are doing. There are things where you are right now today that could be helpful to others. And you may not know exactly how it's going to come out. The counselor at the, at the college whom I didn't know that well at the time, and I said, I'm ready to graduate. I'm going. I'm leaving. I need to know how I can best navigate my way out of here, who decided to be helpful. And I had counselors who undermined my progress. I try to focus on those who have been helpful, but, you know, watch and pray. I also try to watch out for those who are there to undermine. And they are there as well, either jealousy or insecurity or this, this sense that we will not be replaced or who are you, who do you think you are? All those things come with the territory. And I know some people who have stopped their dreams out of fear that they would be disliked because they are ambitious or disliked because of their 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 ability to move forward and 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 they use their special talents that they've been given in a way that excels above whatever I might be able to do or you know if I could sing and I would but I don't think you'd want to hear me sing I think I have a great voice for me at home but I don't know if anybody ever paid money for it or if I could ever make a living but that doesn't mean you can't enjoy those things my point is we all have blessings and we all have those who want to stand in the way of those blessings and we all have the power to help those who are either struggling or trying to to move forward in this world and we can do so without harming ourselves in most cases, but just operate. When that comes before you, when you are standing there and you have a choice, I believe the choice should be one in which we try, try to do the right thing. Try to help out our fellow person, our sister in the cause. Try to be there for they, them. 
trying to make sure that if we have skills that others are paying us for during the day, that we can use those skills on the weekends as weekend warriors or in the evenings that we can have what was called midnight schools back in the day, hundreds of years ago when people were forbidden from reading and writing. Those who knew a little bit more helped the others. That is how we go forward. You just do what you can with what you already have. Just share that and it will be something miraculous. And it might not be for the person you deem it to be. Each one teach one, but not just the little cute one. Not always just the well-behaved one. We have to make sure that we are helping those. And when we do as activists, by acting, very simple, that we know that we are being a blessing to someone else. And as we go forward, Just let us take along somebody else. And it may not be a relative. It may be a complete stranger. But all of us have a gift and we need to share those gifts or they'll die with us. So I want us to talk about not just what is going on in the world, but how we might help a little bit. And by sharing that, we may be able to assist others. Through this phone call, through this radio station, through this podcast, through this time that we have together. 212-209-2877. So I'm trying to share, and I'm trying for the most part, to share some item of Constitution because I'm one of these Constitution geeks. And in sharing this with you, um, I want to be able to get you to see what is going on in the world from my perspective, from my body of knowledge, from what I can share. So I told you, if I could sing it, I would. I don't know if I should. But (laughs) I want you to know about something that's going on with the U.S. Supreme Court that I think is undermining even its lowest time period of of public um, concern. Here's here's the thing. The public polls have shown that the U.S. Supreme Court has its lowest standing in our view, general public, in the history of the Supreme Court that they've been taking polls. It's lowest standing that the idea that the supermajority of conservatives bypassing all the rules before deciding through their confirmation hearings that they would pretty much lie and say that they would hold true certain precedents that have now decided they have the votes. They don't care if it makes sense in their legal reasoning. If they're giving consistency to the country through their opinions, they just want to come together in the end and have what they consider to be the country that they want to design, a country that looks more like the 1940s and 50s than the country in the 21st century. And it's called this phrase, certiori before judgment. Certiori before judgment. Certiori before judgment. So let's look at what certiori is. And I spell that C-E-R-T-I-O-R-A-R-I. Certiori. Some pronounce it certiori, but certiori um, is how I'm going to pronounce it today because that's the way the majority of people do pronounce it. And certiori is request for review. 
When a case begins in court, whether or not it's state court or federal court, it begins at the trial court level. And so the trial court in every state is a court in which you have the judge and sometimes a jury. Um, unfortunately, because we have so many cases before our courts, most of these criminal cases, for example, are forced into plea bargains. And so the um, prosecutor will say, well, if you know, if you make me go to court on this, meaning make me actually allow you to have your constitutional rights to a jury, then I am going to throw all the charges at you. But if you take a plea deal, this plea bargain, then I will say to the judge that, oh, we're going to just um, work this out with one charge instead of five, even though there has to be proof that beyond a reasonable doubt, this person, defendant, committed this crime, the prosecutor can say, well, we're just going to go for everything if you don't plead out. And so we have many people, we'll say 99% of criminal cases are plea bargained cases because check this out. This is, I think, very important for us to understand. There are not enough judges, members of the jury, court personnel, and lawyers for even half of those people who have been charged with, with, with crimes and have cases before the court to actually go to trial. Do you hear me? In this country, the United States is the most litigious country in the world. We have more lawyers, more judges, more cases and more laws on the books than any other country in the world. And yet at the same time, we don't have enough court personnel, enough judges, enough prosecutors, enough defense counsel, enough people who are going to be taken into the court system as potential jurors in order for people to have a trial. And so many people then have to plead out their cases, forced into plea bargainings, because one, that we don't have enough people to plead to um, actually have um, these cases go to trial, but the plea bargaining process then allows our system to continue to work. Because even if, and this is a strategy for people to think about, even if we had um, one third of the people charged with crimes say, I want a jury trial, at the same time, we have um, laws that require that cases come to court within a certain time period. The Speedy Trial Act requires that people can are put, put for the court and not languish in waiting for their trials to take place or languish because they cannot afford bail. All these things are going on at the same time. So just to give you an idea of all of that that's going on, and then when a case does go to, to verdict, that verdict can be appealed. And in federal court, the verdict is appealed from the district court to the Court of Appeals. And then from the Court of Appeals for that case to go to the U.S. Supreme Court, there has to be a request for review or a writ, W-R-I-T, of certiorari, a request Cersei Roy said is a request for the court to review the lower court's findings and determination and then for the U.S. Supreme Court to make a decision to take that case up on appeal to have it as part of its docket. And then for the 10,000 
requests for review. Yes, 10,000 per year. Writ of certiorari. There are 10,000 writs presented to the court, presented, asking for review. And of those 10,000 requests for certiorari, requests for review, the court might take about 200 to 300 cases per year. So this is the process going forward from state courts, from the trial court level, going up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and then from the federal courts. What we have now in this supermajority of this conservative court is certiorari before judgment, which means that the U.S. Supreme Court is allowing certain cases to jump over the hoops and these cases are then taken by the U.S. Supreme Court as the supermajority decides that it wants to then create a, a docket based on the cases it's choosing and not even allowing the case to have its determination by the appellate courts. That is what's going on. So, in, so instead of going up to the court in the proper manner, We've had dozens of cases with this new supermajority super jumping over the, the, the hoops of established protocol and process and taking cases before there's been a judgment, certiorari before judgment, and then deciding those cases in ways in which we don't know how these cases are decided because the, the end result is handed to us without any other, um, without any oral argument, without all the due process of the briefing, the case is then decided by the supermajority and that then becomes the law of the land. This is a concern. This is a fear. This is a discussion that's taking place within circles with the, those who watch the Supreme Court, those who are constitutional law geeks who are saying that this is unprecedented. The number of cases that are going before the supermajority and being decided by the supermajority. When I say supermajority, I mean that it takes um, five people on the Supreme Court to create the law of the land, five out of the, out of the nine. Um, but what we have here, we have six conservatives on the court, and so that's why it's called a supermajority. This is something I wanted to bring to you, and these cases become the cases that run our lives. At 10 o'clock today, United States versus Texas will be heard. You can go to the U.S. Supreme Court website and find the um, recordings of the oral arguments. And this issue, one of these issues um, that will be before the court, um, will be um, one that speaks to this issue of certiorari before judgment and the supermajority being able to take these cases before judgment and judgment by the Court of Appeals, judgment by the, the highest court that's allowed to give judgment before the court is then before the Court of, of, of Appeals then gives its judgment and then the case and can be properly be before the U.S. Supreme Court on a writ of certiorari. This is taking place so that we're bypassing what Ever the structures are that are put in place, the checks and balances we have within our branches of government, and in particular within this branch. That's a concern I have. That's what's going on. And I have looked at it as a concern, and I wanted you to know more about it. And because of that, um, that's kind of... Uh, the way in which we are going forward with our Supreme Court, and it's, it's 
it's a scary time because we thought our Supreme Court would be that one branch of government that would be reliable. But for the majority of the court's history, it's been more of a a, a tool of oppression than a weapon for liberation. Uh, we know those bright spots that have come out like Brown v. Board of Education and others, but those bright spots come like a star and then they linger and we see the light left over from that supernova that created the star. But that once-in-a-lifetime here-and-there Brown case is not the the overall history of our U.S. Supreme Court. The overall history of our U.S. Supreme Court has been more in which people have had, um, unfortunately, um, more of a, of a sense of oppression by the court where it is uh, continuing to establish um, dominance by certain people. And um, those ob- Burgefell cases, for example, that granted same-sex marriage, the, the Roe versus Wade cases, those cases are cases that are the bright lights that have come that speak to not just where um, uh, the country was at the time, but also the rights of people who are in minority positions, because the court has to speak for more than just the majority. If the majority won every time, then, you know, women would not be in positions of power. People of color would be in subservient positions around the country worse than they are right now. And um, religious groups would be marginalized and terrorized. So in order for that not to be the way the country is on a full-time basis, we've had a court have bright spots, but I think that the supermajority is a is one that wants to take us back in which we had a patriarchy that was white male dominated from a conservative standpoint. And I don't say that all white males are conservative. I'm not saying that. But from the standpoint of who should be the voice of this country, who should be making the rules, who should be determining the values of this country. And sometimes when people say, well, you know, why not have it be white male values of conservative kind in which women take a secondary place and people of color are getting crumbs from the table of justice? Why not have that? Well, why would that be necessary if the uh, people who are in positions of power, those who believe they're there naturally, then naturally they would have to stay and not by subjugation of others? through violence and discriminatory laws. Naturally, if they are superior in some way through physical or intellectual ability, then naturally they would be in positions of superiority. They wouldn't need to use our court system to incarcerate two million people each year, breaking up families and communities, preventing people from from going forward with the best of their their qualities, the best of their blessings, the best of their talents, they wouldn't need to throw away the graduate school applications from some little black child who's just trying to use her intellect and be a positive part of the community. You wouldn't need to do that if you believed you were indeed naturally superior. 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. We'll be right back with your insights after this musical break. Thank you. 
Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson, we miss you, and that was I'll Be There. Yes, just look over your shoulder, and I'll be there. And this is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. We're on the air for you, WBAI listeners, so become a BAI buddy. Become my buddy, please. And so we have our first guest on. Good morning. Yes, good morning. I can't hear you. I can't hear you for some reason. Okay. Um, so we have our next caller on. You're on Law of the Land. Good morning. Good morning, Gloria. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Okay, beautiful. Um, it was very interesting, your introduction of the you say the complexity of the criminal justice system and the defendant does not have an edge. I would just like to suggest a concept, a thought. I know you're familiar with it, but as I give it to you, I would like to see how you would expound on it. You know, in the whole legal system, you're arrested, they put you in jail, then you go in front of a, a court, and then they tell you, how do you plead to the indictment? I think if you say not guilty, the next step is they set a date for trial. My strategy, and I'm suggesting it to you, or maybe you could expound on it, there's a term, there's a word, and I'm going to spell it for you. When the, when the clerk of the court asks the defendant, how do you plead to the indictment? The only time in the whole process of the criminal justice system you can actually stop the wheels of justice, a defendant. All he has to say is, I demur to the indictment, demur, D-E-M-U-R-R-E-R, which legally states that you believe, the defendant believes, that the evidence or information that was used to create the indictment was insufficient. Therefore, they would have to set a hearing aside. No judge could say, well, I'm going to plead for you. And I'm just going to hang up and allow you to uh, expound on that word, D-E-M-U-R-R-E-R. Every defendant has that right, okay? 
Love you, and your program is beautiful. Okay, so we have been given this, we um, demure to the indictment. And what I found, um, in a criminal case, a demure is a defendant's assertion that the document laying out the charges, a complaint, information, or indictment is legally insufficient. In demurring, the defendant claims that the charging document is so flawed that it can't be used to convict him or her. So um, if someone wanted to make these statements, they could. And then there would be the judge who would say we find this sufficient and we'll have a legal standard that um, sets out what is considered a sufficient indictment. And so a sufficient indictment is supposed to have certain corners to it, or certain um, certain um, elements that must be met in order for an indictment to be sufficient. And so I think that in the end, the objection would be one in which it would be noted for the record. Um, once that has been noted, the process is pretty swift to decide whether or not the indictment itself um, is sufficient. But I think it is something that could be noted for the record. Um, and in noting it for the record, setting out what makes this indictment insufficient. Um, so I also would want to know um, if this was something that was uh, a strategy, um, it could be a stalling tactic, but I don't think it would result in the case not going forward at all. Um, but I do think that what um, most defense counsel will look at is whether or not there is um, something that is in this strategy that would not, one, just irritate the judge and make the judge um, against this particular defendant in the beginning of the trial and therefore look at it as a stalling tactic and not as a tactic that is meant to have a substantive basis for it. Um, but also, I still believe that defense counsel and, and people who are um, trying to bring these cases and trying to figure out what types of cases um, one could have that would bring to the general public the insufficiencies, prejudices, um, racism, and flaws within our criminal justice system. I think there needs to be an overarching strategy for that. We could do piecemeal um, places and, and, and arguments and um, piecemeal um, practices, but in the end, what is the overarching strategy of those who know our criminal justice system is based in um, racially induced flaws that is, and that this system is undermining communities, millions of people across the country. What is the strategy? And it has to be one, and I believe that includes protest as well as litigation and le legislation. So that trifecta of litigation, legislation, and protest with a vision going forward, what is the vision for reconstructing or deconstructing our criminal justice system because it is completely flawed? And we could try little tactics here and there in individual cases, but what is the overarching strategy? The overarching strategy 
to do something about this criminal justice system. And I'm going to give you an instance that took place. Some of you may know that I was a fellow at Harvard University, at the Harvard Kennedy School. And that's the school for government. I was also there as a visiting professor. So I was teaching one of the core public policy courses at the Harvard Kennedy School, as well as um, a fellow in the Institute of Politics at the Harvard Kennedy School. And my fellowship there is nearing an end. And so um, what I, I found was that there are amazing things taking place at Harvard. People from all over the world come to Harvard to um, be a part of that educational philosophy, that environment, all of that, you know, and, and it still has some major issues, too. As, as um, Malcolm X said, that Harvard messed up more black people than liquor. I can see that, too, <laughs> when I was there. But here's the thing that I was um, concerned about. We have people who come to um, Harvard to, to be a part of what's called a forum. And they are there. And these forums, actually, if you have a chance, they are on YouTube. So you can find them or you can look at forums and at Harvard University, at the Kennedy School, and you'll find them recorded. There's one in particular that speaks to what the caller has said and it speaks to in a different way. And I just want to put this forward. Liz Cheney, Liz Cheney, former U.S. Senator, Republican from Wyoming, Liz Cheney, was a speaker at the Harvard Kennedy School at one of the forums. And so um, after she had spoken and everybody congratulated her for being a part of the January 6th proceeding and, and putting her political life on the line and losing her election because of that, for, you know, she went up for re-election, um, and losing that primary, I asked the question, so what are you now saying to other Republicans regarding the John Lewis voting rights bill? Because the John Lewis voting rights bill, if you're saying that the democracy is in peril and all of these you know, Republicans and Democrats, the democracy, our democracy is in peril, it's in peril. It's like, OK, so basic voting rights should be part of your discussion. You should want to support the John Lewis voting rights bill. So, And she said in front of everyone, you can go back and, and see the video of this. She said, no, I voted against the John Lewis voting rights bill. And she believes and she said that the federal government should not be involved in voting rights. She said this. You can go find it. I asked the question. This is what came out of her mouth that she said, and you can go watch me ask the question and watch her answer it. Look for Liz Cheney of Harvard Kennedy School. So what I'm saying is if we have federal legislation, and we do, for many different things, we, we have federal legislation with the George Floyd um, bill, and at the same time, and that federal legislation for the George Floyd bill is to to um, hopefully reform, change um, the way our criminal justice system that began as bounty hunters um, during the time period of enslavement, as, as militia meant to destroy the families of Native Americans and take their land. Um, to put down um, Native American uprisings, all of these ways in which our criminal justice system began, rose up, and now continues to be infested with the racism of hundreds of years. We need federal legislation, we need protest, and we need litigation. All those things to work 
And so we can have a strategy in which people decide that they're not going to plea out. They're not going to plead. They're they're going to not take a, a plea bargain. They're going to actually go to court. And but we need to have this in some strategic form across the country that will, in a way, say we're not going to allow our criminal justice system to go forward as is. We could have this demure to the indictment. We, we could have this, but it has to be part of a strategy that has a larger vision to it because we have people who are saying from their standpoint, our democracy is in jeopardy. But we're in the shadows saying we don't even have basic voting rights over here. We have those people who could say, yes, we want to make um, differences when it comes to how our police operate. But then we're saying over a thousand people are dying at the hands of police every year. And unless we go burn something down, you don't pay attention. We need to have people who are supposed to be speaking for us in these positions of power, the black elite, the this, that, and the other, all these people. When do we ever come together with a strategy, and when is it more action-based strategy that we can all participate in because we, regular people, would participate in the strategy to the best of our ability if we knew what the heck it was? But at this point, we don't have these so-called people out here with a strategy they're willing to tell us about. They're in some corner somewhere in their own meetings, having their own discussions, getting great sums of grant money to do what they do to keep their organizations going and never say a word to us. And this has been going on for years. So we need to start calling out some of these organizations that are supposedly operating on our behalf, but never come and tell us what the heck they're doing and how we can participate in it. So that, my listener, is my response to your call. And we're going to take one more musical break. And if you have something you'd like to put forward regarding our criminal justice system, 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. We'll be right back after this this musical break with our listeners' comments. And this is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall.
How long? The Whispers, The Whispers. And I actually like The Whispers very, very much. Um, and Miss Scotty. So that was How Long. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall on WBAI 99.5 FM WBAI.org. And whether you are here in the tri-state area, around the country, or around the world, I say thank you for listening to Law of the Land. We have a listener right now on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Good morning. Yeah, uh, Matum from New Jersey. Uh, first and foremost, uh, shout-outs to the political prisoners in the United States, Mateen Abdur, uh, 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 Abdur Mateen Durham in, in New Jersey, Sunniata Coley in New Jersey, Momia Abu-Jamal in, in Pennsylvania, uh, Matula Shakur in New York, uh, Jamil Alameen in Alabama, and even though the Indians don't, the Native Americans don't do a lot of advocating for us on their free channel TV show, uh, Leonard Peltier. So um, I wanted to ask uh, a couple questions, and you might want to ask answer them off the, you know, when I get off, you know. Uh, but is there any way that our legal minds could have designed a way? so that the African-American, indigenous African-Americans, uh, descendants of African slaves in the United States, not the black diaspora, Caribbean, Africa, all that, those who were slaves of the U.S. government could have been designated as a protected class a long time ago so that when it comes to holding office, like Gandhi did, and, and I'm not no fan of Gandhi, uh, we would not have to run against those who have uh, long experiences in politics, knowing how government works, all of that. The other thing is, uh, what is it about appointing judges in the state of New Jersey uh, that they, they think that that's some kind of uh, positive thing? Uh, thousands and thousands of judges that the public never sees unless they're in their courtroom losing something most of the time. Do you even see these people? And uh, uh, other states, PA, New York, you elect people. You get to see their face before they come up to you talking about, I'm taking your license, I'm taking your car, your house, I'm taking your, your, your uh, uh, freedom and sometimes even your life, and you've never seen this joker a day in your life. You might have seen him sitting in the strip club, but you didn't even know who he was. And the last thing, why does the U.S. Constitution not say that you have to be a lawyer to sit on the United States Supreme Court and possibly other federal courts? It may be there, but I didn't see it. Do you have to be, and are there people in New York that are judges uh, that aren't lawyers. Okay, well, let me start with the last question first um, because you touched on a lot of great points. One, the U.S. Constitution does not state that a person must be a lawyer to be on the Supreme Court. You are correct. That is not in the Constitution. 
And so um, most places it's assumed that the person is going to have a law background, but it does not state it in the U.S. Constitution that one must be a lawyer to be a justice of the high court. And I knew of a judge in Philadelphia who was in traffic court who was not a lawyer. And he was a judge in traffic court. And so, yes, there are judges who are sitting in states today and they could be sitting in in states where um, local jurisdictions will allow them to to be a judge and not be a lawyer. Or if they're running for the position, um, lawyers would probably say, well, I would make a better um, candidate. I would make a better judge for this position because of the law background. But um, that doesn't mean that the person they're running against might not be, you know, someone who will say they have more information or they have a better background. So, yes, um, you're right about that. There there is nothing in the Constitution that says that a judge must be a lawyer, but there could be local laws that say that uh, judges must be lawyers or the tradition is such that it's very difficult for some non-lawyer to gain a position as a, a local judge or magistrate. Going back to judges in general, I am so glad you mentioned this. I think that we as a community, and this is we writ large, we meaning the tri-state area, the, the national landscape, needs to pay more attention to the judges who are running for office. We have looked at other offices. We've looked at other politicians. We've focused on those who are running for um, positions in our legislative bodies statewide um, or are running for Congress, running for president. We have not focused on the judges and we need to do that. So thank you, my brother, for bringing that up. That has been something I've wanted to talk about for some time. I was going to do a whole show on it and I might do that in the future, but this is a good front runner for that, that we need to focus on who is running for judges for the position of, of being a judge who will adjudicate these issues from family court to um, criminal justice, appellate courts. These positions of power are such that they can wreak havoc in the lives of our communities. And as we know before, you know, all kinfolk ain't skinfolk, all skinfolk ain't kinfolk. We need to understand the positions of these people and not just that they have been um, um, approved by a political body, but are they approved by the body community? And have they shown some disrespect towards people of different groups that they would not be the best to be in those positions? Or have they shown while they've been in those positions that they have a disdain for the community? I know my brother Manuel Gomez, who has been on this program many times, has called out a number of judges in the in the, the boroughs of New York, as well as some in New Jersey, who have shown disdain for the legal system. He's shown um, from uh, judges in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania um, disdain for um, people in positions of, of before them uh, wanting justice and receiving racism. So we need to focus on those judges. Thank you so very much for bringing that to my, to um, the attention of the listeners and, and, and really focusing my attention on it because I needed that for something that I've been wanting to do for a while. The first point that you raised and now the last point I'll get to 
African-Americans as a protected class. Um, it is something very interesting. I remember when President Obama ran for office and was then elected the first um, African-American president that people from the Caribbean said, why are you making such a big deal about this? We've had black presidents for quite some time, and this is a big deal for you. And you're right. There's, there's a difference when people have been intentionally by law and violence prevented from fully um, realizing their political power. And then starting at, in the 1960s, even though we were in politics earlier than that, from the 1870 when we had our first black um, U.S. senators and U.S. Congress people and House representatives and local politics as well, that we're in a situation in which we are playing catch up. We've done very well pushing forward, but other people do have a better sense of how politics work. Um, but it would have been good to have us as a protected class. It was thought that way, but I don't think it was assumed that other people from other parts of the African diaspora would come in and not work with the African-American community or or see the African-American community in such disparaging terms that they believed that from the outside that we just didn't take advantage of the opportunities here in this country and that, that we that should be pushed to the side and, and let other people come in and, and take advantage of these opportunities. So that is a, a major concern. And there's so much I'd like to say about that. But I'm out of my time for this show this day. And I am just so pleased, as I always say, I have the smartest listeners. And thank you so much for supporting Law of the Land. And I want you to know that I think about you even when you might not be thinking about me. Yes, because I think about what is it my listeners need to know. So as we go forward, I want you to say, please be an activist in your own way, to yourselves and maybe to a friend or two. And until then, thank you, Michael G. I'll see you. On the radio.